So today we're continuing in the uh, series on the book of 1 John. If you want to go ahead and turn to chapter 2, verse 28, uh, here in a few minutes we're going to begin reading there and read through chapter 3, uh, verse 10. Uh, so you can just hold your place there. I think when we get there we'll also uh, be showing it on uh, the screen behind me. So I have a question for you. Uh, just to contemplate on your own. I'm not going to ask for any response from you, but I just want you to do a quick evaluation of yourself. What is your attitude toward the return of Jesus Christ? Uh, When you think about the return of Christ, uh, what kind of reaction do you have? Um, It has been my experience that there are many different reactions that people have to the thought of the return of Christ uh, if, if they're honest. Uh, if you're not a follower of Christ, you might think the whole notion of, of Jesus returning to the earth and, and uh, our being caught up in the clouds to, to meet him and all of the things that the Bible talks about regarding Christ's return, you, you may dismiss that as uh, nothing more than Christian fantasy. So that's one attitude that people here might have today about the return of Christ. You might be a Christian who grew up uh, being told every week at church that Christ was going to return very soon. Uh, I remember the church camps that I grew up going to uh, every uh, June, July, or August when church camp uh, happened. I would go home convinced that I would not see Christmas break, that, uh, that Christ was going to return before Christmas. And so if you grew up like me and now it's been a couple of decades or maybe several decades uh, later, uh, you may have concluded that all the anticipation for Christ's return is just sort of a wasted effort and wasted energy. Or maybe you've come to believe what a lot of Christians these days seem to believe that, you know, we're just too busy doing good here on earth to concern ourselves with when Christ will return. There's probably a good number of you, I realize I sort of cut, cut off your exuberance here a few minutes ago, there's, there's probably a good number of you who really long for the return of Christ, that uh, when you think about it, it's a source of comfort for you. Uh, it's a thought that gives you great joy and, and just a lot of hope. And if you could choose, you would choose for Christ to return right now. I have a feeling there are a good number of you uh, here today who feel that way. But then I think, uh, just just from experience and and honestly from ways that I have felt at past times in my life, I think there are probably a good number of us who believe that Christ is going to return, but we don't necessarily think about the return of Christ with hopeful anticipation. We, we might even feel a little uneasy when we think about the return of Christ. We, we might be in that group of Christians who say, you know, I believe Christ is going to return someday, but I hope it's not today. Or I hope it's not very soon. You know, I, I want to get married first, or I want to have children first, or, you know, I want to be able to retire from my job and enjoy a little relaxation first. I'm not that excited uh, about the return of Christ. And there might even be some who would say, you know, I'm a Christian, but if I'm real honest, I sort of dread the thought 
of the return of Christ. It just makes me feel uncomfortable. What our text today does is it tells us how we can look forward to and anticipate the return of Christ and do so with confidence, with no apprehension, with no uneasiness, with no negative feelings, but with confident anticipation. And so I want to read these verses, 228 through 310, and if you would, follow along as I do. John writes, And now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. So evidently, John had assessed that there were people who, thinking about the return of Christ, were not confident. And if Christ were to return, they would greet his return with shame. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. Wow. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. Do you feel a little like I do? Kind of like, could we just like take that out of the Bible? Is there any way that we could, you know, get a committee together and review this and say, is there any loophole to get this passage out of the Bible? But of course we can't. Notice the first verse we read. And now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. John wants us to be able to think about the return of Christ, to look forward to the return of Christ, and to do so with great confidence, which I heard a few minutes ago from a number of you uh, here today. He wants us, at the return of Christ, to be able to greet Christ unashamed confident and unashamed. And our text tells us how this can happen. 
It tells us how we can confidently anticipate Christ's return. Tells us how we can be confident and unashamed when we see him. And to just very quickly summarize all that our text says about this, here's the answer as to how we can confidently anticipate Christ's return. Stop sinning and do what is right. Stop sinning and do what is right. And to Christians who have been schooled in the gospel of forgiveness of sins that is available in Christ, but less well-schooled in the good news that Christ came not to just not just to bring forgiveness of sins, but to bring us freedom from the bondage to sin, this all sounds like some type of legalistic raging. Stop sinning. Do what's right. That's what it, that's what it sounds like to us. Not to mention that it seems impossible. It's kind of like saying, jump up and touch the sun. That, that's what stop sinning sounds like to us. It, it seems impossible. Stop sinning. How, how could I do that? What was that? <laughs> Guitar case. Okay. All righty. Do I, do I need protection up here? All right. Police officers to the front, please, quick. Hey, you know, you tell people to stop sinning today, you might need protection. So, so how do I stop doing that? But here's the thing. According to John, this admonition to stop sinning and do what is right is not legalistic and it's not impossible. Listen to some of the things that he writes in this text. Verse 28, everyone who does what is right has been born of him. He's clearly saying that evidence of belonging to Christ is that we do what's right. Verse 3 of chapter 3, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself. Verse 6, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. Verse 7 and 8, he who does what is right is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil. Verse 9, very challenging. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. And verse 10 then just just wraps it all up, makes it really crystal clear. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. You do what is right. You're a child of God. If you do not do what is right, you're not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. And this makes Christians who have convinced themselves that sinning daily in word, thought, and deed is a Christian obligation, essential to being a saved-by-grace Christian, it makes people very uncomfortable. Not asking for a show of hands, but I'm guessing there are some uncomfortable folks here right now. And yet we can see that Scripture is clear on the matter. 
Now, at this point, I think there are a couple of important things for us to note. First, we need to realize that it is true that Christians sin. I I mean, this is just as obvious as saying the grass is green. Christians sin. The Apostle Paul went on record as uh, lamenting how often he failed to do what was right, how often he failed to resist sin, how often he did what what was opposed to his faith uh, in God. The the Apostle Paul himself uh, was very clear that this was the case in his own life. I think what we need to understand here is that 1 John is not addressing a situation where a Christian sins and then repents, which is more than just saying you're sorry, but is actually turning away from the sin and turning back to God. And then from that point on, allows God to empower them to resist that sin in the future. That's not what 1 John has in view. What 1 John is addressing is the situation where a professing Christian lives continually in a state of disobedience to God. Where a professing Christian makes permanent accommodation for their favorite sin. Where a professing Christian convinces themselves that they and God have an understanding about this particular area of their life and God understands why they're just not able to give that particular thing over to him. It's addressing the situation where a Christian makes peace with their sin. They're not troubled by it. Their conscience has stopped being bothered by it. Essentially, they have justified it in their minds, reasoning that since they have been saved by grace, they can continue to accommodate their sin and God does not have a problem with it. And this was a problem in the New Testament church. And it's a problem in in the church in 2014. All throughout the New Testament, you see uh, Paul saying things like, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid that we do that. This is what 1 John is addressing. And we're told very sobering things about a professing Christian living in a continual state of disobedience to God. Again, no one born of God will continue to sin. He cannot because he has been born of God. So there's no suggestion in this that that we will live completely sin-free lives. But there is a very clear proclamation that living in a state of continual disobedience to God is not only wrong, but is impossible for one who is born of God. And so there is a legitimate question for us to ask ourselves. If an honest inventory of our lives shows us that we are living in continual disobedience to God, we have to ask ourselves some hard questions. Have I truly been converted? Have I truly been saved? Have I truly been born again or did I just raise my hand to an offer of salvation but the action had no connection at all to my heart? 
Mark Dever, a pastor in Washington, D.C., is convinced that one of the greatest problems facing the church of Jesus Christ today is false conversions. And I think he's right. The second thing we need to note here is that 1 John is not advocating salvation by merit. It's not advocating salvation by works. It is not advocating that we earn our salvation by right living. What it is saying is that if someone has truly been born of God, there is going to be evidence. And the evidence is that their lives are going to change. They're not going to live like they did before they came to Jesus. They're not going to be able to live continually in disobedience to God. They aren't earning their salvation by living right, but living right is the fruit of being born of God, and it is the proof that they have been born of God. Jesus himself made this quite clear in Matthew 7, 21. He said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But listen to this next line from Jesus. You you know, there are uh, Christian theologians out there who want to pit Jesus and Paul against one another and a lot of things that, that they say. But, but listen, this is from Jesus. This isn't, this isn't mean old Paul now. This is loving Jesus who says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Is Jesus a legalist? I don't think so. I don't think so. Only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. The Apostle James is well known for calling out empty faith. He wrote this in James 2. What's the use of saying you have faith if you don't prove it by your actions? That kind of faith can't save anyone. Greg Laurie, the pastor of Harvest Christian Fellowship in Riverside, California, it explains this very well in my view. He writes, now don't misunderstand. James is not saying that faith can't save anyone for we must have faith in order to be saved. He is saying that real faith, true faith, will produce change in a person's life. If a person's faith does not produce any change in his or her life, then it is not faith at all. Such faith is dead, unproductive, and shows no evidence of existence. Can that kind of faith save anyone? The answer in a word is no. Any declaration of faith that does not result in a changed life and good works is a false declaration. So Christians... cannot live in a continual state of disobedience to God. We do not earn our salvation through right living, but changed lives and right living are the natural result, the natural fruit, the natural outcome of someone who has truly been born of God. And so here's a question that all of us have to ask ourselves. Am I living any differently 
since I professed faith in Jesus than I was before? Am I living any differently? Or am I living exactly the same, but I just slapped the name of Jesus over top of my life? And here's what I would suggest to you. If you're living the exact same way you would if you weren't a Christian, then there's a real possibility you're not a Christian. That you have never been truly converted. This is why, in order to have confidence regarding the return of Christ, we must stop sinning and do what is right. Because whether we admit it or not, when we continually live in disobedience to God, it rightly causes us unease about our relationship with Him, and it rightly causes us unease about our standing before uh, God when Christ returns. It rightly does that. It should do that. So, let me point out four things here that are instructive on how we can stop sinning and do what is right. First of all, remember who you are. If you have turned to Christ in faith, what John tells us is you are a child of God. Chapter 3, verse 1. How great is the love that the Father has lavished on us that we might be called children of God, and that is what we are. You you might be like me. In fact, I, I think many of you in this respect probably have had this kind of experience There have been many times in my life when I have chosen the right path, even though it was not the path that I was naturally predisposed to take, because in sometimes just the nick of time, I remembered that I belonged to a family that I did not want to dishonor. I I didn't want to do it. I remembered that my actions would reflect poorly on my family, and so I ended up making the right choice. Remembering that we are children of God, that we bear the name of Christ, that we don't just represent ourselves, but we represent the God who has graciously called us his own. This can have and should have a restraining influence on us when we're tempted to live in a way that we know brings reproach on his name. Verse 3 says, everyone who has this hope, Now, what's the hope it's talking about? It's the hope that they're a child of God and that when he appears, they will be like him. Everyone who has this hope purifies himself just as he is pure. I run into a fair number of Christians who who want to act as though they have no role to play in living right. That their attitude seems to be either God does it for me Or I just have no ability to do what's right. But the truth is that there is a dynamic relationship between God's power and our will. They work together. And notice what John says. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself. 
We've got some work to do in this thing. We have to put our will to work toward living right. And you can do it better, I think, when you remember who you are. You are a child of God. Second, we can stop sinning and do what's right when we remember what Christ has done for us. Look at verse 5. Just on the heels of saying that sin is lawlessness, John writes, but you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sin. And you know, we have reduced the meaning of that to something less than what it really is. The full meaning of that verse isn't simply that Christ came to forgive our sins, to take away the penalty of our sins, but it is also so that sin might cease to exercise its control over our lives, that it might cease to be dominant over us. He came not only to forgive us, but he came to set us completely free from the bondage to sin that we have lived under. And so when we live continually in disobedience to God, we're not living in the way that's best for us. We're living below what the work of Christ has secured for us. We're living in a way that is detrimental to our well-being. We are living lives as slaves. We are in bondage when we live that way. And so we need to remember that Christ came not only to forgive us, but Christ came to set us free from all of that. And so one of my prayers for all of us is that we would allow our desires to grow beyond satisfaction with forgiveness and allow our desires to be for all that Christ has provided for us, that we would desire the freedom that he has provided, not just the forgiveness that he's provided. Look at verse 8, second sentence. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Jesus came to destroy the devil's work in your life. Not just to offer you forgiveness for living like the devil, but to actually destroy the devil's hold on your life and my life. Matthew Henry, that... I always forget if he was a 16th or 17th century theologian, writes this, Let us not serve or indulge what the Son of God came to destroy. When we live in an ongoing state of disobedience to God, continuing in ongoing sin as our normal state of being, we are serving and indulging what God came to destroy. We are making Christ's sacrifice of no effect in our lives. So verse 5 tells us Christ appeared so that he might take away our sin. And then verse 6 says, No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues in sin has either seen him or uh, known him. And, you know, again, we look for some lifeline, some, some loophole to this. But the ESV study Bible, which uh, many of you may have, sums it up very nicely. It says, true followers of Christ do not recklessly and habitually violate what their anointing has planted within them. Those who habitually sin have neither seen him nor known him. They are not genuine Christians. Like every source I went to, I, I thought somebody was going to soften this. And there are sources out there that would, but, but, but I don't read those sources. So all of the sources that I went to did not offer me uh, any lifeline here, any, any loophole here. It, it was just, it is what it says. 
And so we have to get honest with ourselves. Do we really know him? Do we really belong to him? Have we really been born again? And then verse 9 again drives the point home so forcefully. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. So we stop sinning uh, by, by knowing who we are, by remembering what Christ has done. And third, when we remember that we've been born again and we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Verse 9 references being born of God. It says we can't go on sinning because God's seed remains in us and then references a second time that we have been uh, born of God. Here's the deal. It is an impossibility to have the Holy Spirit indwelling you and there be no change in your life. We're not saying you'll be perfect. The scriptures are very clear. None of us will be perfect. We we are being sanctified, but none of us will arrive uh, until that point when Christ uh, returns. But, But it is an impossibility to have the Holy Spirit indwelling you and there be no change in your life. It is an impossibility to have the Holy Spirit indwelling you and live life like you did before you met Christ, to live in continual disobedience to God. But more than pointing out uh, this fact, here's what I want you to get uh, on this question of how we can stop sinning, uh, do what is right, and live up to all of these challenging truths we've talked about today. I want you to understand that while your will is involved, you do not have to do this on your own and in your own power. God has given you and given me the Holy Spirit to do this. We have the Holy Spirit living in us. The power that raised Christ from the dead dwells in us. This is what scripture teaches very clearly. Yes, our will is involved, but it does not all rest on us. It doesn't rest on the sheer force of our will to stop sinning and do what's right. God has given you and I his spirit to enable us to do what we cannot do in our own strength. So press into the Holy Spirit. And part of of, uh, tapping into this is just being more aware, reminding ourselves of what the truth is. I am indwelled by the Spirit. And then the fourth thing on how we can stop sinning and do what is right. Remember that Christ is coming back. This is where we started. John writes this section because he desires for those reading this letter and all who would come to Christ in faith, he desires that all of us would be able to be confident and unashamed at the return of Jesus. And here's what I'm convinced of. I am convinced that if we really believed Christ could return at any time, our will would get kicked into gear a little better than it is now, and we would stop sinning and do what's right. I am convinced of this. Now, too many of us believe that Christ will someday return, but we live as though he'll never return. And if you're someone here today that, you know, you you know that you're living in ongoing continual sin 
But, but maybe you've been tempted to respond to what I just said, something like this. Brian, that's not really true. I, I would not live any different if I knew Christ was going to return because I know that I'm not saved by my works. I'm saved by grace. If you would say something like that, you are absolutely fooling yourself. Let, let, let me ask you this. Just let's be honest. If you knew Christ was going to return tomorrow, would you spend a day gossiping about your neighbor? Oh, yes, yes, Brian, I, 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 would, I would keep gossiping. No, you wouldn't. <laughs> if you knew Christ was going to return next week, would you keep stealing just a little bit from your employer? Well, say by grace, of course I would. No, you wouldn't. Would you continue flirting with your married coworker if Christ were going to return at 7 p.m. next Wednesday? Well, maybe through Tuesday, then I would stop. <laughs> no, you wouldn't. You would stop now. If Christ was coming in the next few weeks, would you abandon your sexual sin? Of course, if you don't really belong to him, maybe you would not. But if you do belong to him, but you've been in a time where you've kind of been testing the limits of how continual you can sin and still belong to him and still genuinely be his, after all, scripture doesn't tell us exactly where that line is. But, but, but if you've been testing the limits, but you really do belong to him, of course you would stop sinning. And of course you would do what's right if you really believed that Jesus could return at any moment. And the fact is, friends, he could return at any moment. I'm convinced of this. He could return at any moment. I, I don't, I, I mean, you can make arguments different ways, but I don't really believe there's anything left that needs to happen for Christ to return. He, he, he could come at any moment. And here's another truth. Even if he doesn't come soon, none of us know the moment when we personally will face him. Because there's not a single one of us here who are promised our next breath, much less tomorrow. Not one of us. Listen, I, I don't have strong opinions regarding the return of Christ. I, I don't have any theories on when it will be. I'm, I'm not convinced that those who spend a lot of time predicting what every international development means for the return of Christ really know much about what they're talking about. But I am absolutely convinced that Christ could return at any moment. And I do believe that the events in our world suggest to us that his return could be very, very soon. You want to stop sinning and do what's right? You need a little extra motivation? Remember that Christ is coming back. And it could be very soon. John writes all of this because he wants those who read this letter to have confidence about the return of Christ. He wants them to be able to welcome Christ's return unashamed. 
And I desire the same thing for myself, and I desire the same thing for every single one of you here today. And this is true. We can have confidence about the return of Christ. We will be able to welcome his return unashamed when our lives prove the faith that we say we have. When our actions match our profession of faith, we will have the confidence to anticipate his coming. We will look forward to his return. We will desire and long for that day when our faith becomes sight. And so if you're here today uneasy when you think about the return of Christ, it does not have to be that way for you. You don't have to be uneasy about his return. Maybe you have never turned to God in faith, but deep down you believe that the Bible is true. Deep down you believe that Christ is your hope of salvation. And deep down you do believe that when Christ returns, you will be judged. Today your unease can be removed by simply turning to Christ in faith. And you can leave here today confident that if Christ were to return, you could face him unashamed. Maybe you're one of those Christians who's been pressing the limits of how much sinning you can continue to do and still truly belong to him. Your unease can be removed today if you'll simply surrender completely to Jesus. Just turn away. Repent. Remember who you are. Remember what Christ has done Truly believe that Jesus is coming soon and know, remind yourself, tap into the truth that you are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. You don't have to do it in your own strength. And you can begin to allow the Holy Spirit to cooperate with your will, or let's say it a better way, your will cooperate with the Holy Spirit to begin to live the life that God desires for you to live. And now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. Why don't you stand?